"'Come upstairs with me, Tom,' she whispered, "'when they were outside the door. "'There's something I want to do before dinner.' "'There's no time to play at anything before dinner,' said Tom, "'whose imagination was impatient of any intermediate prospect. "'Oh, yes, there is time for this. "'Do come, Tom.' Tom followed Maggie upstairs into her mother's room and saw her go at once to a drawer from which she took out a large pair of scissors. "'What are they for, Maggie?' said Tom, feeling his curiosity awakened. Maggie answered by seizing her front locks and cutting them straight across the middle of her forehead. "'Oh, my buttons! Maggie, you'll catch it!' exclaimed Tom. "'You'd better not cut any more off.' "'Snip!' went the great scissors again, while Tom was speaking, "'and he couldn't help feeling it was rather good fun. "'Maggie would look so queer. "'Here, Tom, cut it behind for me,' said Maggie, "'excited by her own daring, and anxious to finish the deed. "'You'll catch it, you know,' said Tom, "'nodding his head in an admonitory manner and hesitating a little as he took the scissors. "'Never mind, make haste,' said Maggie, giving a little stamp with her foot. Her cheeks were quite flushed. The black locks were so thick, nothing could be more tempting to a lad who had already tasted the forbidden pleasure of cutting the pony's mane. I speak to those who know the satisfaction of making a pair of scissors meet through a duly resisting mass of hair. One delicious grinding snip, and then another and another, and the hinder locks fell heavily on the floor, and Maggie stood cropped in a jagged, uneven manner, but with a sense of clearness and freedom, as if she had emerged from a wood into the open plain. Oh, Maggie, said Tom, jumping round her, and slapping his knee as he laughed. Oh, my buttons, what a queer thing you look. Look at yourself in the glass. You look like the idiot we throw out nutshells to at school. Maggie felt an unexpected pang. She had thought beforehand chiefly at her own deliverance from her teasing hair and teasing remarks about it, and something also of the triumph she should have over her mother and her aunts by this very decided course of action. She didn't want her hair to look pretty. That was out of the question. She only wanted people to think her a clever little girl, and not to find fault with her. But now, when Tom began to laugh at her, and say she was like an idiot, the affair had quite a new aspect. She looked in the glass, and still Tom laughed and clapped his hands and Maggie's cheeks began to pale, and her lips to tremble a little. "'Oh, Maggie, you'll have to go down to dinner directly,' said Tom. "'Oh, my!' "'Don't laugh at me, Tom,' said Maggie, in a passionate tone, with an outburst of angry tears, stamping and giving him a push. "'Now, then, Spitfire,' said Tom, "'what did you cut it off for, then? "'I shall go down.' I can smell the dinner going on. He hurried downstairs and left poor Maggie to that bitter sense of the irrevocable, which was almost an everyday experience of her small soul. She could see clearly enough 
now the thing was done, that it was very foolish, and that she should have to hear and think more about her hair than ever, for Maggie rushed to her deeds with passionate impulse, and then saw not only their consequences, but what would have happened if they had not been done, with all the detail and exaggerated circumstance of an active imagination. Tom never did the same sort of foolish things as Maggie, having a wonderful instinctive discernment of what would turn to his advantage or disadvantage, and so it happened that though he was much more willful and inflexible than Maggie, his mother hardly ever called him naughty. But if Tom did make a mistake of that sort, he espoused it, and stood by it. He didn't mind. If he broke the lash of his father's gick-whip by lashing the gate, he couldn't help it. The whip shouldn't have got caught in the hinge. If Tom Tulliver whipped a gate, he was convinced not that the whipping of gates by all boys was justifiable act, but that he, Tom Tulliver, was justifiable in whipping that particular gate, and he wasn't going to be sorry. But Maggie, as she stood crying before the glass, felt it impossible that she should go down to dinner and endure the severe eyes and severe words of her aunts, while Tom and Lucy and Martha, who waited at table, and perhaps her father and her uncles, would laugh at her, for if Tom had laughed at her, of course everyone else would, and if she had only let her hair alone, she could have sat with Tom and Lucy, and had the apricot pudding and the custard. What could she do but sob? She sat as helpless and despairing among her black locks, as Ajax among the slaughtered sheep. Very trivial, perhaps, this anguish seems to weather-worn mortals, who have to think of Christmas bills, dead loves, and broken friendships. But it was not less bitter to Maggie, perhaps it was even more bitter, than what we are fond of calling, antithetically, the real troubles of mature life. Ah, my child, you will have real troubles to fret about by and by, is the consolation we have almost all of us had administered to us in our childhood, and have repeated to other children since we have been grown up. We have all of us sobbed so piteously, standing with tiny bare legs above our little socks, when we lost sight of our mother or nurse in some strange place, but we can no longer recall the poignancy of that moment and weep over it, as we do over the remembered sufferings of five or ten years ago. Every one of those key moments has left its trace, and lives in us still, but such traces have blent themselves irrecoverably with the firmer texture of our youth and manhood, and so it comes that we can look on at the troubles of our children with a smiling disbelief in the reality of their pain. Is there anyone who can recover the experience of his childhood, not merely with memory, of what he did and what happened to him? of what he liked and disliked when he was in frock and trousers, but with an intimate penetration 
a revived consciousness of what he felt then, when it was so long from one midsummer to another, what he felt when his schoolfellows shut him out of their game because he would pitch the ball wrong out of mere wilfulness, or on a rainy day in the holidays when he didn't know how to amuse himself and fell from idleness into mischief, from mischief into defiance, and from defiance into sulkiness, or when his mother absolutely refused to let him have a tail coat that half, although every other boy of his age had gone into tails already. Surely, if we could recall that early bitterness and the dim guesses, the strangely perspectiveless conception of life that gave the bitterness its intensity, we should not poo-poo the griefs of our children. Miss Maggie, you're to come down this minute, said Keziah, entering the room hurriedly. Looks, what have you been a-doing? I never see such a fright. Don't, Keziah, said Maggie angrily. Go away. But I tell you you're to come down, miss, this minute. Your mother says so, said Keziah, going up to Maggie and taking her by the hand to raise her from the floor. Get away, Keziah. I don't want any dinner, said Maggie, resisting Keziah's arm. I shan't come. Oh, well, I can't stay. I've got to wait at dinner, said Keziah, going out again. Maggie, you little silly, said Tom, peeping into the room ten minutes after. Why don't you come and have your dinner? There's lots of goodies, and Mother says you're to come. What are you crying for, you little spoony? Oh, it was dreadful. Tom was so hard and unconcerned. If he had been crying on the floor, Maggie would have cried too. And there was the dinner, so nice, and she was so hungry, it was very bitter. But Tom was not altogether hard. He was not inclined to cry, and did not feel that Maggie's grief spoiled his prospect of the sweets. But he went and put his head near her, and said in a lower, comforting tone, "'Won't you come, then, Magsy? "'Shall I bring you a bit of pudding when I've had mine, "'and a custard and things?' "'Yes,' said Maggie, "'beginning to feel like a little more tolerable. "'Very well,' said Tom, going away. "'But he turned again at the door and said, "'But you'd better come, you know. "'There's the dessert, nuts, you know, and cowslip wine.' "'Maggie's tears had ceased.' and she looked reflective as Tom left her. His good nature had taken off the keenest edge of her suffering, and nuts with cowslip wine began to assert their legitimate influence. Slowly she rose from amongst her scattered locks, and slowly she made her way downstairs. Then she stood leaning with one shoulder against the frame of the dining parlour door, peeping in when it was ajar. She saw Tom and Lucy with an empty chair between them, and there were the custards on a side table. It was too much. She slipped in and went toward the empty chair, but she had no sooner sat down than she repented and wished herself back again. 
Mrs. Tulliver gave a little scream as she saw her, and felt such a turn that she dropped the large gravy spoon into the dish, with the most serious results to the tablecloth, for Keziah had not betrayed the reason of Maggie's refusal to come down, not liking to give her mistress a shock in the moment of carving, and Mrs. Tulliver thought there was nothing worse in question than a fit of perversiveness, which was inflicting its own punishment by depriving Maggie of half her dinner. Mrs. Tulliver's scream made all eyes turn towards the same point as her own, and Maggie's cheeks and ears began to burn, while Uncle Glegg, a kind-looking, white-haired old gentleman, said, Heyday, what little girl's this? Why, I don't know her. Is it some little girl you've picked up in the road, Keziah? Why, she's gone and cut her hair herself, said Mr. Tulliver, in an undertone to Mr. Dion, laughing with much enjoyment. Did you ever know such a little hussy as it is? Why, little miss, you've made yourself look very funny, said Uncle Pullet, and perhaps he never in his life made an observation which was felt to be so lacerating. Fie for shame, said Aunt Clegg, in her loudest, severest tone of reproof. Little girls as cut their own hair should be whipped and fed on bread and water, not come and sit down with their aunts and uncles. Aye, aye, said Uncle Clegg, meaning to give a playful turn to his denunciation. She must be sent to jail, I think and they'll cut the rest of her hair off there, and make it all even. She's more like a gypsy nor ever, said Aunt Pullet, in a pitying tone. It's very bad luck, sister, as the girl should be so brown. The boy's fair enough. I doubt it'll stand in her way. I like to be so brown. She's a naughty child, as'll break her mother's heart, said Mrs. Tulliver, with the tears in her eyes.